Good morning to all of you. Welcome to our visitors. It's good to be with you this morning. I have enjoyed our Sunday school hour and our children's class. And, uh, you know, as, as stirring as the, as the story of the Red Sea is, uh, how, much, how much more amazing is the story of Paul and Silas and, and the Philippian jailer and his family being saved. It's just uh, a special story. Uh, my message this morning is not from 1 John, actually. Uh, we're going to start in 1 John and end in 1 John, but that's not actually uh, where we'll be spending most of our time. The title of this message is Five Requirements for a Strong Koinonia. I don't know if you're familiar with that word or not, but you will be soon. Uh, this message, uh, I, I heard a message uh, several months ago, preached by Edsel Burge. I don't know if you're familiar with him or not, but he's, from, he's a minister at the, at the church in Shippensburg. And, uh, and when I heard it, I was challenged by it and decided, you know, sometime I need to preach a message with a similar focus. And so I've been planning on this for some time. Uh, in this, he, he preached this message a number of years ago, maybe 2011, it was a series actually on the church, and uh, he preached a three-part series, each one on a different aspect of the church, and the one that stood out to me especially was his message on koinonia, the meaning of church uh, as a fellowship, the aspect of church as a fellowship. Koinonia is the Greek word for fellowship, and uh, the church is not just a fellowship, it is also a a governing body, in a way, with authority to make decisions. But uh, the aspect of fellowship is what I want to focus on this morning. What we're going to do is we're going to do a quick tour through Scripture and look at some of the uh, main passages that use this Greek word, koinonia, and, um, and, and study how it's used uh, with regard to the church. We will look at, at one set of passages toward the end that actually do not use this word, but I think you'll agree that it's still relevant. It's dealing with a subject. We won't really get to sink our teeth into any passage in particular, I'm afraid. Uh, that's just kind of the nature of, of this style of a sermon. But I do think that uh, we should get a fairly good overview of this subject. I hope so. And as we go through these scriptures... Uh, we're going to collect five requirements for a strong koinonia. Koinonia is a Greek word used to describe church often, relationships among church members. It's translated different ways depending on its context. Sometimes it's translated fellowship, probably most often fellowship. Sometimes it's translated participation or sharing or communion. Uh, you can start turning to 1 John, chapter 1. We're going to look at, at some passages, different passages that use this word. As we go through these five requirements for a strong koinonia, a good question to be asking yourself is, how much does this matter to me? Uh, how much am I willing to invest into a koinonia? 1 John chapter 1, starting at verse 6. 
If we say we have fellowship, that's koinonia, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What John says there is uncomplicated. The only way to have fellowship with God is to walk in the light. And as we walk with God in his light, we have fellowship with fellow travelers. We're walking together on this road. And we cannot have this kind of close fellowship with those who are not walking in the light. You can't have koinonia with those outside of the light. And we shouldn't try to. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship, that's koinonia again, what fellowship has light with darkness? So if you're not walking in the light, you cannot have koinonia with those inside the light. Even if you grow up in a Christian family, even if you attend church regularly, Um, even if you're related to half of its members, if you are not walking with God, you're not in fellowship. Edsel Burge put it this way, nurture is no substitute for being born again. The most important and the most fundamental part of our fellowship with each other is being in fellowship with God. And for each of us individually, if if our relationship with God is non-existent or maybe just in a very bad place, uh, so will be our relationship with the brotherhood. So the first requirement for a strong koinonia or any koinonia at all is being in fellowship with God, walking with God. For the second requirement, we can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 now. Turn to 1 Corinthians 10. This is a passage in which Paul's making an argument that the the Corinthians should not participate in these pagan temple feasts, festivities. My understanding is he's telling them not to go eat food in in these temple festivities. 1 Corinthians 10. This passage is kind of famous for what it says about communion, but communion actually is not his, his main subject here. He's using communion as uh, to make his case. And in doing so, he's telling us some important things about communion. For example, it is more than just a memorial service. In this passage, we have the word koinonia four times. In some translations, it's translated participation. In the King James, it starts off as communion. And then the King James switches to partakers in verse 18 and fellowship in verse 20. I'm going to actually read this passage from the New American Standard. So if you're using a Bible app, switch versions quickly. New American Standard here. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ. The sharing word is, is, is koinonia here that we'll see four times. 
is not the cup of blessing which we bless, a sharing in the blood of Christ, is not the bread which we break, a sharing in the body of Christ. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. Now, follow Paul's argument closely here. He says, first of all, that those who participate in communion become sharers in Christ. The Israelites who eat of the sacrifices are also sharers in the altar. And through that, they worship the one to whom the altar was made. Christians who eat at these pagan temple festivals run the risk of becoming sharers in something pretty terrible. Demon. Demons. Demonic activity. That's a pretty sobering thought. In this argument, what Paul does make clear about communion is that it is more than just a memorial service. After all, we call it communion, not memorial. And so as we drink together, we share in the sacrificed body, uh, blood of Christ. As we eat from one loaf, we share in the sacrificed body of Christ. And as we share it together in Christ, we are drawn together. There's some mystery there, but it's also logical. As we all share in this, in this one body, we are drawn together. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So I think that uh, when we as a church have communion, and we go through that line and we take the bread and the juice, we, who are, we are saying to one another, we're, we are one body. We're one body. But also, in addition to that, I think that as we take part in this service with our hearts right with God and at peace with each other, that we are, something spiritual is happening in us and we are being drawn together. I believe the communion experience builds our oneness. And so for me, if, if I'm missing out on communion, I'm missing out on something uh, spiritually nutritious uh, when it comes to my koinonia with the rest of you. So the second requirement for koinonia, for a strong koinonia, is communion. Now we'll pick up our third point by looking at how the newborn church behaved in Acts. So you can turn to Acts chapter 1. The first passage we'll look at there does not actually contain the word koinonia. But if you want to flip to Acts 1.13, uh, here Jesus has ascended to heaven and the disciples return to Jerusalem. Chapter 1, verse 13. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. 
All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers, Jesus' brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And that's as far as we'll read right now, because we're not so much interested in what Peter had to say as in what these people were doing. Brand new little church. Or maybe technically it wasn't quite a church yet, a pre-church. Uh, it's not spelled out clearly here in, in, in um, absolutely clear language, but it sounds like there was a good-sized group meeting together regularly uh, back here in this upper room in Jerusalem. It was a natural thing for them to do. They were Jesus' disciples. They met together. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And now you can start turning to Acts 2.42. This comes after uh, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, to which about 3,000 people responded. I don't know how many of those were from Jerusalem or stayed in Jerusalem. Acts 2.42 says, And they, this is immediately after those 3,000 responded, next, next description of what the church was doing is this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, koinonia, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The New American Standard puts it this way, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. This here is not an original point with me, but I want you to notice that they devoted themselves to uh, not just the apostles' teaching, that was one thing, but also to this other thing, different from the apostles' teaching. It's called koinonia. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship. So if you show up at... Um, now, I know a lot of you showed up at 11 o'clock this morning, okay? So this could be awkward. You show up at 11 o'clock, listen to me preach, and immediately go home, which I hope none of you do. Uh, at, you know, during the last song, you would have listened to the teaching, but you would have missed out on the koinonia. Two different things, aren't they? Uh, you would have missed out on the interaction that happens before church, during Sunday school, and the interaction that happens after church. Koinonia and the apostles' teaching here are, are, are uh, described as, as two separate things here. Koinonia, what I'm saying here is that koinonia requires us to spend time together, interacting with each other, getting to know each other, and encouraging each other. Uh, the writer of Hebrews commands it like this, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The newborn church in Acts instantly saw this as being something to which they should be devoted, and we should too. I went through a, a four-year stretch in which I missed about 90% of our church services 
And no one was very upset about it because I had a good excuse. I was in Romania, and at some point, the trip to church is just too long to make it practical. And so I became quite disconnected with uh, the fellowship here. Even though I was technically a, a member here, I was not really in fellowship with the Bethel Church. I was more in fellowship with the church in Romania. Uh, so I had a le- legitimate excuse, uh, but while I was in Romania, I was not really uh, meeting with you all, talking to you all, uh, and so on. The things that the New Testament church describes uh, as being important for church members to do to each other uh, was not happening between me and the rest of the Bethel Church. We weren't confessing our faults to each other. We weren't admonishing each other. We weren't encouraging each other. We weren't really stirring each other up to love and good works, talking about me and, and the rest of you. I'm sure that was happening between you all while I was not here. And the point is, fellowship, it, it just is not possible without spending time together and actually interacting with each other and so on. The New Testament church clearly believed it was important to meet together, and, and we should too. If we don't, we are robbing our church and ourselves. In some ways, this, this third requirement here is, is the simplest, uh, and maybe it's the easiest, I don't know but we we really need to take it seriously if we're going to have a strong koinonia. Now you can start turning to 1 Corinthians. We've looked at three requirements for a strong koinonia, fellowship with God, communion, time together, but those three are not enough. You can turn to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 9. Uh, those, those three things, communion and meeting together and, and even being a Christian, are not enough for a strong koinonia. Uh, and, and the Corinthians have demonstrated that pretty effectively, I would say. They were Christians. They were meeting together. They were taking communion together, not very carefully. But their fellowship was very flawed because they were divided. In, in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen, Paul told them, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Now back here in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul commands them to be united. And he uses the word koinonia here in verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Each of us has been called into the fellowship of, of his Son, Jesus Christ, and that, that fellowship makes division within the body inappropriate. And Paul is begging them to agree, have the same mind, have the same judgment, and that there should be no divisions among you. Now you might think, well, the Corinthian church was uh, pretty messed up. I mean, you know, that's... Maybe that's why Paul is making such a strong call to unity. But in Philippians 2, 
Paul says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation, koinonia, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Fourth requirement for a healthy koinonia is unity. A church body that is divided is unhealthy and dysfunctional. I think it's kind of like a drunk man, stumbling around, falling down, injuring himself. I I still remember an incident in Romania when we were driving down the road, approaching a man on a bike. I can't remember if I was driving or not. Um, And we noticed quickly that this fellow was... um, biking under the influence, you might say. He was kind of weaving, weaving around. We gingerly passed him, and soon afterward, as, as I was looking back, uh, I saw him make a sharp right-hand turn where there was no right-hand turn, and he went up a bank and uh, somehow managed to turn around and come down the bank, and then he piled up on the edge of the road. It was a pretty pitiful scene. Uh, though I won't say the van was completely empty of some chuckles. Um, but it was, it was a, sad, a sad situation at the same time. That's, that's a divided church. It is um, bruising itself, injuring itself, not getting anywhere fast. It might just destroy itself completely. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4. This is one of my favorite passages about church unity. Ephesians chapter 4. I think uh, division is is a favorite weapon of Satan against the church. And we need to fight back. Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Eager, uh, diligent, it's another word that's used here, eager or diligent to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. If we want to have a healthy uh, koinonia, it's going to take some diligence and some striving. And um, it seems to me that Paul is saying that in order to do verse 3, maintain the unity of the spirit, you have to put on the traits listed in verse 2, which are humility, gentleness, patience, and love. The bond of peace is not going to last long without those elements, unless you happen to be in a church that is never attacked by Satan. When a body of believers is, is filled with humility, gentleness, patience, and love, that body can work through some tough stuff. And, and come out with a singleness of mind. It, the goal here is, is not to get us to the place where we agree on every single little detail, which is impossible, but we agree on major points, and we are committed to each other and supporting the body to the extent that uh, we, are, we are working together and committed to this thing even when we disagree on the minor points. eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. The fourth requirement for a strong koinonia is unity. Now, 
for our last requirement, in this last section, we're, actually, we're not actually going to encounter the word koinonia. Um, but I, I, this subject is still relevant. I believe a strong koinonia uh, requires, is a, is a fellowship in which members treat each other like family members, like family. The New Testament writers often use the word, use familial terms to talk, uh, to, to, to refer to each other. Paul and John both refer to their audiences as children. John calls them dear children. Paul calls Timothy, my true son in the faith. In Matthew 12, Jesus said, whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul told Timothy, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. And of course, the New Testament is just filled with the usage of the word brother, uh, not in a biological sense, but in a spiritual sense. These aren't just nice kind of respective titles to make us feel warm toward each other. They, they indicate a duty to each other and, and a bond and a loyalty that, that can be as strong as biological family or stronger sometimes. In Mark 10, verses 29 and 30, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Now, referencing back to uh, Etzel Burge and his message on this, he, he says that one of the ways in which he believes uh, this passage is fulfilled is when someone is willing to give up uh, the relationships with their biological family to follow Christ. They're, they're willing to, to make that kind of sacrifice in order to enter the kingdom that those people can find a new family, uh, a new spiritual family in Christ. And he has said, and I don't know uh, everything about his background, but he said that he has, has found that to be so. Think of a, a strong family uh, that you look up to. What are the characteristics of a healthy family? There's love, there's loyalty, there is um, respect, and there's belonging. And a healthy church has the same kind of characteristics. There, there is love for all of the members, Romans 12.10. Love one another with brotherly affection. There's loyalty to each other. Uh, we are looking out for each other. I'm going to look out for you when you're in trouble. I've got your back. Everyone belongs. Everyone matters. Uh, we want every, every member of this church to grow and do well, to become that tree planted by the river of water. 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. I have a foot that bothers me. If I stand too long and I'm 
It's not bothering me too much right now. But it can, it can get kind of painful, uh, and it's been something that's been going on for a long time, actually. But I've never seriously considered cutting it off. I have a lot of loyalty for my left foot. And, and I work with it, even though it is, is, it's kind of a pain sometimes. I, I work with it. Uh, I do stretches. I do exercises. None of it actually seems to help, but I do it anyway. I'm not going to cut it off. But I, and I'm not going to just ignore it and, and pretend that there's not a problem there uh, and hope that it just heals itself. That's, that's how we should treat all, all the members of the family. Is our church a family? Does everyone feel like they matter? Here's, here's some challenges for you to think about. Uh, try to get to know that person in church that you don't really know. Go out of, out of your way to extend your circle of friends. I'm an introvert. That's hard. Try anyway. Uh, don't just relate to those who are related to you. That can be a challenge, especially for someone like me. We are one family. If, if someone joins our church who isn't related to anybody else in our church, that person should feel just as much apart as if he were a yoder. Especially watch out for those who might be slipping through the cracks. So these five requirements are fellowship with God, communion, time together, unity, and a family bond. I think that's, those are five key requirements for having a strong koinonia. Kind of as an application, I, I just want to ask um, some questions for us some things for us to consider under each of these requirements. Fellowship with God. Am I walking with God? Am I walking in the light? That's the first and most important. Is my relationship with him healthy? Am I keeping myself clean from the world? Communion. Am I taking part in communion? Am I making sure that my heart is, is prepared for that? Are my relationships in good order? It is possible to take part of communion and not benefit from it, or worse. Time together. Am I attending church regularly? Am I interacting with my brothers and sisters? Do I actually talk to people about spiritual things? Unity. Am I striving to preserve the bond of peace? How, how high of a priority is that for me? Could someone describe me as gentle, humble, patient, and loving? Someone who knows me well might say, sometimes. Family bond. Do I have a family-like love and loyalty for my brothers and sisters? How much am I willing to sacrifice for them? Do I care about all of them or just the ones I get along with? In conclusion, the bad news is that koinonia takes a, a lot of work and sacrifice, constant work and sacrifice, striving. If you want to do your part, it's going to take work and sacrifice. It's much easier to not 
care that much. That is definitely the easier road here. And in a, in a busy, in a busy uh, materialistic American culture, it's especially challenging to not care that much and to make koinonia kind of this, your church, a corner off to the side. How much are you willing to give up for your church? How much are you willing to give up for the fellowship that Christ died for? Here's the closing verse from 1 John. 1 John 3.16 By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So may God give us the strength and the wisdom and the love to build a strong koinonia here at Bethel. God bless you.